0: Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the Leading Edge of Knowledge and Discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove.
1: Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be looking at the life of the 15th century saint, visionary and heroine, Joan of Arc. My guest is my good friend James Tunney, author of The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution, The Mystery of the Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism, Empire of Scientism, The Dispiriting Conspiracy and Inevitable Tyranny of Scientocracy, tech bondage, slavery of the human spirit, human entrance to transhumanism, machine merger and the end of humanity, as well as two dystopian novels, Blue Lies September and Ireland. I don't recognize who she is. James is based in Gothenburg, Sweden. and Now, I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, James, and Happy New Year. What a pleasure to be with you again.
0: Uh, Happy New Year, my friend. I'm looking forward to the conversation, and I wish you all well for the, the year to come.
1: Thank you. We'll be talking about Joan of Arc today, and I think it's a fascinating example of how mystical experiences and visionary experiences get intertwined with political affairs.
0: Yes, my interest in Joan of Arc was a general interest. I remember growing up in Ireland, a lot of the school kids talking about Joan of Arc. And I remember my sisters coming home from school and talking about Joan of Arc. And I can still hear this conversation going on today. She is a a protean figure, enigmatic, but inspirational, that talks to a whole diverse range of of people. And they all believe that she has something to to give to them. and, And maybe she does. Um, but in recent times, my ex- I've been trying to look back at the evidence again because of my interest in mysticism to discern what is there and to what extent the analysis from a mystical perspective uh, and from what I've learned from parapsychology uh, and conversations with you and your work about what, what, how does that t- help us interpret, if at all, a story.
1: Well, I suppose, uh, especially growing up, as I believe you did in a Catholic family in Ireland, Joan of Arc was uh, canonized as a
0: saint in, I think, 1920. That's right, 1920. She was, uh, the, the the campaign began in the 1800s. So it, it went on that the devil's advocate got involved in about 1892. And then she was made venerable in 1904, 1908. She was made blessed and canonized in 1920. So in Ireland, she would have spoken to not only to a Catholic nationalist Republican kind of uh, ethos as well, because she was struggling. And not only was she struggling against the Nenon, she was struggling against the English. So perhaps there was an extra, an extra parallel there. But it does raise very interesting questions about the nature of violence and the legitimacy of, of struggle or, or, or armed struggle in that context, which is another issue. Um, so it, it was relevant, but it was more the amazing story of a young girl and the power that she exerted through her visions and and the power of visions. And it was more that context that is enigmatic that does go against the grain that is strange that is unusual that requires further examination it seems like mythology it seems like joseph campbell's the hero journey it seems like an invented story and it certainly has elements from all those classic stories of finding swords going to the king but this is a true story uh, whatever whatever constructs people may find there, whatever whatever doubts they may have of the veracity of some of the story, it's a true story. And it's one of the most amazing stories uh, ever told in in that context.
1: Well, I I guess to set the stage, we should go and take a look at the 15th century, uh, which is when she lived.
0: It's very important uh, to understand the context in which this struggle happens. And it's quite interesting. If you look back at where most battles in history have been fought. France and the green fields of France has been the, the the context in which an awful lot of battles have been fought. So when we're talking about the area of struggle in this context, we're not far off from where the D-Day landings happen. We're not up the road where we have Waterloo. We have the First World War. The river that goes by our house was where uh, leads up to, to some of the worst battlefields in World War I. Uh, We have a Napoleonic context. Vichy, France corresponded with the area occupied by the English in this story. There's battle. Over a thousand years there are battles in these areas. Uh, Going back to, well longer than that, going back to the time of Julius Caesar when Julius Caesar is fighting the Gallic Wars. He he comes up and and there's horrendous battles fought against the Celts, against the, the Gauls. So there's been constant battle in this domain. But the period we're talking about is the Hundred Years' War, and that's generally seen as a battle between the English and the French, although it's a bit more complicated because in the, on the French side, the Burgundians were allied to the English. So the, the French, if you like, were often referred to as the Armagnacs or the Valois. We'll call them the French for the purposes of, of, of our discussion. And at the time of, of her life, the English uh, were allied with the Burgundians. Now, when we're talking about the English, we have to remember that the Plantagenets that established, if you like, the, the modern world, the modern Britain. These are French. They're, 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 they're from France. Uh, Henry II was French speaking. He didn't speak uh, English. Uh, and for the first few hundred years, the connection with France is very strong, where a number of the kings are brought up in France. So going back to the where were based in Anjou, and there are interesting stories about the Plantagenets. The Countess of Anjou was supposedly a demon. They referred to themselves or were referred to as the devil's brood, and they, they celebrated this connection with, with the dark forces to, to some extent. And it was brut- a brutal time in the history. So... For example, when Ireland was invaded in in eleven sixty nine, Ireland became part of the Angevin Empire. So Ireland was connected with uh, with England and Wales, down to uh, and France, down to Spain. So we have to think in, in in terms of different interrelationships. But for her life, what she was born into was a context where she was born in fourteen twelve. In fourteen fifteen, Henry the the fifth had come over. And had won a battle at Agincourt, and that had destroyed the French nobility. And the English and the Burgundians were in control of the northern uh, the northern part of France over the Loire Valley. And as well as that, they had the, the tactics that were used at the time, including sieges, for example, were very destructive on the civilian population. So when he came back in 1418, Henry V laid siege to Rou- Rouen and there were thousands of people died. There were, there were, it went on for about a year. There was people eating rats. The, the French even threw out thousands of people into the ditch around the city. It, w- it was a grim time. And then we have marauding bands of soldiers and armies fighting. Uh, we had rape, pillage, the lot, all the things, uh, 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 destruction of civilization, uh, wild animals roaming in, in different places. So she's born into a very turbulent time. She would have heard about Agincourt, about the siege of of, of Rouen, and about the fact that this king, King Henry V, had a legitimate or a claim to the the French throne. And in fact, the regent of of France, uh, Isabelle, Isabeau of Bavaria, she had made an agreement in 1420 at the Treaty of uh, Troyes that Henry V would succeed to the French throne as well. And she did so because the King of France, uh, King Charles VI, uh, was mad. Now, sometimes we discuss about what mad means, but he seems to be the genuine article. He believed he was made of glass, for example. That that was a a phenomenon that existed at at the time. He had killed some of his retinue. He held like a wolf. There, There wasn't much debate about the fact that this man was mentally disturbed. Uh, and so she had the queen, the, the regent who was uh, who was pulling the, the or was exercising power, effectively disinherited her son, who would have succeeded because his older brothers were, uh, died. So the Dauphin uh, was the, the person who Joan of Arc will want to, to, to become king. But, uh, there was a, there was a great struggle going going on and uh, France was very very divided so in that context we have the English claiming uh, claiming control of France and in fact we will see that Henry Henry v's son uh, does succeed to the throne in, in 1422 so when Henry in 1422 Henry the sixth comes to the throne so by now this boy is uh seen to be not only the king of england but by this treaty he's the king of france he succeeds to the throne when henry v dies aged 35 from, in battle of, of dysentery so the new king is aged nine months old and he succeeds in the same year in 1422 when charles vi dies in france so he's only a few months older so uh, by the time by the time Joan of Arc is uh, ten she's much older than the King of england and, and and france and and just one point about Joan of Arc of course to the french she's she's Jeanne d'Arc Jeanne d'Arc or and, and her name may have been pronounced more like uh, jehan and the Arc really came on after although her father was Jacques d'Arc. Uh, her, she may have been known by her mother's name, which was Romay. Her mother was Isabeau, uh Rome, and uh, she she called herself Jeanne or Joan La Pucelle, the maid. Uh, so that's an important uh, point. I,
1: I gather that she was really of peasant stock, not highly educated
0: she wasn't very poor and they certainly weren't rich so, so she would have been a peasant in the context of someone living in the country and it, although she lived in a village and her father would have been important in, in the village uh so they weren't there's debate about the exact how poor they were her house is uh, is still there um so she she, she yeah she wasn't very rich and, and and she wasn't very poor there are some theories which i don't think Bear bear scrutiny, which suggests that she was actually an illegitimate royal child that was sent out to the uh, to to, but it doesn't really bear scrutiny. So she lived in 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 Domremy in in the uh, the northeast of of France in 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 Lorraine or, or on the border of Lorraine or Lorraine, and she. Uh, she had a normal childhood. Uh, she she denied later that she was a shepherdess. She was often sh- sold as a shepherdess. She said she she did more needlework with with her mother, although she would have done normal duties around the village. And we do know from the trial, from the number of trials that came, uh, came afterwards, that she was a normal child that played with the other children and she would have partaken in festivities. And there was one story which was significant about a fairy tree in the village and a fountain that she she partook in these uh, communal activities so she had a, a fairly normal uh, childhood. but the, there was tensions in the countryside even with local local burgundians they would have and hated the burgundians so so across the river there would have been people that they were very hostile towards so these were very deep and also the town she was a little village she was brought up in was burned twice so the threat of violence and of marauding forces and of rape and pillage was in the background all the time. But she lived beside a church, and that was very important to her. She was a very pious girl. Uh, a lot of evidence suggests that she went there regularly. But she had no education, as you suggested. There's, there is in, on every issue there is some debate because she said she she didn't know her A from her B. She or B's. She could sign her name. But there are some people that believe that she could read. I don't. Uh, I, I think she she had uh, the uh, the evidence suggests that she could say the Our Father, the Hail Mary, and a confession of faith, and that was it. Uh, and also, we don't have a very centralized church at this stage. Just before her lifetime, there was three, three popes. There was the Pope in Avignon and Angani in in, in uh, uh, and Rome. There was there was different claimants to to the Uh, to the papal power so we don't have a centralized church and one one last point about that this is an area that irish monks such as columbanus uh, came over uh, during the dark ages and established a a more celtic type of christianity as well that may be in the background some scholars think that, that that can be an important element in describing a broader idea of of her catholicism
1: so at some point she
0: began having visions she she began to have visions about the age of 12 or, th- or 13. there's a bit of doubt because she didn't really know what age she was at her trial she she stated or she agreed that she was about 19. Uh, her birthday is 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 unclear i don't think there's any record of that she's believed to have been born on January the 6th, uh, which was the Feast of the Epiphany, that would be a good day to pick out for, for, for a hero. Um, so we, we don't know, but 12 or 13, she's out in uh, the midday sun and she begins to have a vision. She begins to see a light. She begins to hear voices uh, or a voice. And the so, so we have to be careful in relation to the descriptions of her experience because some of them came under duress at her trial. I think the best Evidence suggests that at the age of 12 or 13, she had an experience which involved a, an overpowering or, but comforting light, which was uh, associated with a voice, which she, she associated with the highest comforting light, which would have been God. But she, she, she may have in, described it as an angel or from God. Uh, and that this began to talk to her, to tell her to be a good girl, basically, and to begin to not to be frightened and uh, and a few of uh, a few general statements initially. Uh, and they change over time. They get more specific. Now, later at the trial, she describes these figures as being associated with St. Michael and St. Margaret and St. Catherine. And a lot of scholars believe that that was Uh, elicited under duress and it's not reliable that she may not have seen them in that sense Uh, and i think there's good evidence for that i i i think it's more of a classic light experience which would be perceived to be divine there's also some suggestions uh, from the clerics that it may be associated with the fairy tree and the fairies which is quite interesting as well Um, and there is there's, you could even make a case or even begin to wonder whether she's not in the category of someone like the PK man, for example, that has, a, has some kind of contact with some other force. Now, of course, it, 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 for her, it's not a demonic force because it's, it's, it's comforting and positive and tells her to go to the church and uh, we, it, could be, it could be that it is Saint Michael and, and Saint Catherine because Saint Michael was a very important figure in France and the Irish monks as well had a, a, a cult of Saint Michael as well so that image could have easily come to her but uh, I'd be more inclined to regard her as a figure from God in her mind or an angel which begins to tell her things and later gets more specific and later begins to tell her more detailed things.
1: Well, you've written about the mystical light. It's very important, I know, in your own thinking about mysticism. And I presume that it would be fair to say that you regard these experiences that she's having, however we, whatever words we use to explain them, as authentic.
0: Uh, uh, For me, the thing that makes the, the most authentic thing about the story is this phenomenon, that it's a classic experience across all cultures. Uh, you can see it in the Sufi tradition, in the Islamic tradition. You can see it in all cultures. We've talked about that before. There's two elements about the light. I often emphasize the, the, the luminosity aspect. But there's also the, the claritas aspect. When we talk about clairvoyance uh, and the idea or, or a clairaudience and hearing things, there is a deep perception of clarity which is often associated with lightness it's, uh, it may be it may refer to a kind of th- sense of thinning of the atmosphere an interdimensionality that's, that's also part of the experience so sometimes when people talk about light they may be also referring to this extreme sense of clarity and uh, of perception that's associated with it which can be explained in a in a number of ways but the light experience is universal and my my sense is that this this divine sense uh, of spiritual light the idea that a person has an experience it's associated with light it's associated with if you want if you don't want to use the word divine the highest intelligence a higher intelligence which is comforting but it's not only comforting it changes the person so i i I describe that as spiritual light it's effective it has a direct affect or influence on the the person's perception It has an emotion. It affects the heart, the brain and their actions subsequently. So it's not like an ordinary light phenomenon. And that's a very important uh, aspect of it. And also the, the courage that she manifests afterwards, the clarity, the certainty, the willingness to die for her beliefs is associated for me with her perception of this force. And people say, well... If you look at david hume this the the philosopher dismisses her as a as a as imagining this although he talks about the senses and the importance of the senses in empiricism and george bernard shaw would regard it as as part of her fertile imagination uh the funny thing about this is that we're going into the perceptual domain the experiential domain something that some someone perceives and my suggestion in relation to empiricism is empiricism has failed to accommodate the full range of perception and, uh, and senses. Yes, she she perceived this, uh, and it's spiritual light in my terms because there's the experience, there's the affect on her, there's the result, uh, resulting actions that that come from there, and also the the sense of knowing something that she didn't know before, being able to exercise powers which are more associated with the cities or about as that are seen to be supernatural in some sense so we have this idea of an intervention an intervention is an idea which is is important in mystical ideas and we can go back to the classic one of the classic writers on this of course is surawardi who who explains about the nature of knowledge from epistemological sense and how one important source of knowledge is revelation and revelation for him is associated with light so this is not light in the sense of a light that's that's in the room next to me it's this sense of a force which has power noetic power and emotional power as well and that's what distinguishes spiritual light from anything the scientists have yet identified
1: well at some point she becomes convinced that it's her mission to restore the Dauphin of France to his, what she believed to be his rightful kingship, and, and that
0: she herself, a, a teenage girl, was going to accomplish this. This is the, is the amazing part of the story. The voices has convinced her that she is going to save France, and that uh, it's her, her duty, or she has a number of tasks in that context. Um, as, later on she is to as it gets near the time she leaves home or runs away she knows she has to relieve the siege of orleans uh, which has been surrounded by by the british uh by, sorry by the by the english forces so she she knows that she has to relieve orleans that's that's a, a primary role and then she has to ensure that the dauphin is uh, crowned at rance as as king of france and there's a few other little bits of it but they're the central point and associated with that will be the liberation uh, of france so that becomes very very uh, clear to her and she doesn't have a background to engage in the chivalric knightly uh, martial art world in the genuine martial arts sense but she's convinced that 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 it's her now there is a a a background that we should consider in that there are many prophecies uh at the time of a maid uh, who will come from that area of a, a virginal figure that will arise to save france and this can even be seen uh, in the prophecies of uh, saint Brigitta, who we talked about before the swedish uh, the swedish saint and it can also be seen in the maryland prophecies this a girl who's going to 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 save france so so this was in the air and and people would argue well she heard this and this affected maybe she did maybe she didn't but we don't know it's a chicken and egg situation but still i mean we've all heard prophecies it doesn't mean that we're going to beat down the door to believe that it's us that are going to implement the prophecies but she becomes convinced that she has to save france there's another little instant before she goes off on a journey there is a a, an action for breach of promise that some some chap believes that he had or she had been promised to him in marriage and she's involved just before she goes away in an ecclesiastical court and they say uh, that she's not bound to marry this man everyone a lot of the writings always make the church to be bad and all these things but there was a lot of rights that emerged from the ecclesiastical court they said she didn't have to marry this chap but in the end her father also interestingly had had visions that she would go away with the soldiers uh, so he had some kind of psychic sense as well, he was concerned about that, so she had to come up with a pretext to leave home and she she she, she decided to approach the local captain who lived in Vaucolaire and she approached him first in 1428 and he wasn't interested he, he laughed at her, He he said she should go home and her father should should give her a belt uh, that, that that it was a, it was a crazy idea and she approached again in in the start of uh, 1429 J- january february she persuaded him uh, she came to him and eventually persuaded him that he should give her an introduction or, or, or approval to go and see the dauphin at a place called shino so so, so that was the 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 uh, the way the voices kind of pushed her into action
1: and for the benefit of our viewers who may not understand the term Dauphin, can you explain that?
0: Well, the Dauphin, which I think means dolphin, it was translated literally, was a a, a name you a word used to describe the uh, the usually the eldest son, but meaning the eldest son who was entitled to succeed to the throne. And he wasn't the eldest son in the family, uh, but the other the older sons, his brothers. Had been killed by then, and they had no heirs. So that meant that he should have succeeded to, uh, to the throne on the death of his father, Charles uh, VI. But uh, some others regarded him as the king. But he hadn't been—he hadn't gone through the process of coronation. And in the cathedral at uh, Reims, the, there had been this oil that had been used for, for the French kings going back. Hundreds of years. So uh, that was really the important symbolic uh, coronation.
1: The interesting thing in this story is that somehow Joan of Arc managed to convince local officials to uh, provide a military escort so that she could meet personally with the Dauphin.
0: What happens is she goes off on a, on a great heroic journey through dangerous territory that was held by the enemy. Uh, and traveling she begins to at this stage adorn herself with male clothes because it's it's more convenient basically and it's more practical and she's she's sleeping in the company of men and she's she's becoming a soldier in this context so they travel through dangerous territory she gets uh, some helpers to escort her but nevertheless it's very very dangerous and they proceed to uh to Shinon and they send, she sends an advance warning that uh or she manages to, to the king that that, that they're going to come there and um so she arrives as as Shinon in uh, in March uh, of 1429 uh, and at that stage there's a lot of different stories about her arrival there it's contested in some cases people say well she had met the the king the dauphin before she actually met the dauphin and that uh, it was there was a kind of uh, a construct a, th- a kind of theatre there but the evidence suggests that she came to the the castle uh, and that the the dauphin was having had a, had a, a large amount of of people there and that he was in disguise or wasn't really revealing his identity and that she was able to distinguish him Although he wasn't indicating who he was from the crowd. And that was a sign there had been, there's other stories about her arrival to the castle where, where she foretold the death of someone that wasn't very nice to her and was saying things against God. Uh, there's all these there's stories around it, but she talks to the King and she tells the Kings or the Dauphin. He, he's regarded as the King by his retinue, but she tells the Dauphin, uh, Things that only he could know, that, that were revealed, that he knew, and that were revealed to her. There's a lot of speculation about that. Was what, what that was. Part of it may relate to the fact that uh, his mother, the Isambo of Bavaria, had kind of suggested that he was illegitimate. And, and that was part of the, the reason why he shouldn't uh, become king. And it, that may have been what she told him about. But she guaranteed or convinced him that he was entitled to be the king and gave some other evidence to him, uh, which, which convinced him. But although she convinced him and made an impression, he, he, he was cautious and he required that some theologians examine her at, at Chinon. And, and that was the next stage where, where they got some clerics to investigate whether this could be possibly true.
1: In other words, uh, you could say that he was conducting parapsychological investigations.
0: I would make the argument that there's a lot of literature of this period that emerges from this process, which effectively is rational, which effectively is scientific. It's a forerunner of scientific inquiry, and it's it's looking at the rational in a rational way at the evidence to try and justify whether uh, the person is uh, or could be could be authentic and uh, in that sense the clerics look at her and they say yes this could be true they say we need a sign but scripturally and actually and bearing in mind that she is uh a virgin that was an important point because she she said she was a maid and she emphasized this thing so she's examined on a number of occasions to to attest to the fact that she is a maid and, uh, uh, along the way and uh they say yes it could be but we need a sign now this is no different from the position that you're in when you were where you were trying to evaluate the the pk man in in your, in your mind uh, I, I presume so uh, you have to say, well, okay, the, the person is claiming this, but I can't accept that, I need evidence. So she said she would provide a sign by, by, by in her approach to, to Orléans by, by her action if she got the uh, authority. But it's important to emphasize that the church don't say and the church didn't say that these things cannot be true. They say that you have to exercise discernment. And the, the, there was a philosophy at the time And it was it was explained and written about by someone from the University of Paris who's called Jean Garçon. And he wrote uh, a number of works on discrétio spirituum, which is the discernment of spirits. How do you test whether these spirits exist, whether there's not some other explanation? How do you go through that process? For example, the first step in it was to determine whether the person was a person you know i mean that that had to be determined is joan of arc uh, of our, our actually a person uh, and simple things like that but there are very rational explanations and also if she's claiming they came from god or from jesus is are her actions consistent with that so if you read through what uh he said and what the clerics said at that stage there was there, there was no there was no uh there was no great inconsistency but also but that wasn't enough he only had a few clerics at uh, Chinon so she she was sent to Poitiers for a greater examination so the 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 first big examination of her in these terms was at Poitiers and that when she was in Poitiers for about three weeks while she was examined and while while more clerics looked at a bigger field of clerics were brought in to investigate whether this was authentic so yes it's very scientific and I think that if someone was if someone is compiling an encyclopedia of parapsychology and they don't refer back to these uh, the writings in 1401 1429 by gerson and that i think you're leaving out something about one is leaving out the history of what is parapsychology uh, or what became and also these church men were kind of a forerunner of, uh, of the Church of Science that we have today. <laughs> there, 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 there is a, or, or the, 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 the people that claim rationality is, every, uh, is everything. So yes, after she comes to the king, she's ex- examined uh, briefly at, at, at uh, Chinon and then more thoroughly at uh, Poitiers. And then they decide, well, yes, she should be, she should be allowed to go on the mission with, with the support, you know, in, in the, the Dauphins name.
1: At this point, I gather the Dauphin equips her with ar- armor and uh, some military status so that she can actually go into battle.
0: Yes. she's From the time she begins her journey, she's changing. She's, she's gaining men's clothes. Her hair is, is, is cut in that famous uh, a cropped cut that, that that we see in her representations so, of well, her, although nobody knows what she looked like. There isn't an accurate representation of her. There's one little drawing and, and, and a margin once, but we don't know what she looked about. We know that she was uh, or they, they say she's about five foot, foot two and kind of stocky peasant girl, but there's not much more a, a, about that. Uh, and then at tour she is given a, a, a suit of armour, uh, I think white metallic uh, armour and also the king is going to give her a sword but she said she she tells him that there is a sword buried at a church that she had been to on the way it was a church of saint catherine of fierbois and she said that there was a church buried behind the or a a a sword buried behind the altar in the church and that uh, someone should be sent there so they sent someone that that she didn't know i think to the to look for this uh, sword, and there was a sword found behind the, the 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 altar in the church, and that was the 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 first one w- one she used. And of course, people some people believe that that was a setup, uh, but we do have that that mythical uh, element of the sword. Now she didn't use it to stab people. The only use that we know that she used of that sword and other swords was to hit women that were f- the camp followers that were following around the soldiers. Uh, she hit them over the back with. Uh, with it. But she didn't use it uh, to, to 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 kill anybody.
1: I guess at this point in the story, there follows a series of remarkable and unexpected military
0: victories. This is the amazing thing. There are some people believe that during the time and all these theological investigations that she was being trained. She was being trained and horsewomanship womanship. Uh, she was being trained to carry a lance she was she certainly was practicing uh, but the suggestion is she was trained in military matters um and it, it's very unconvincing she, she certainly didn't have that experience she, ser- she she had some aptitude for 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 the whole military uh, regalia and, and and for what was going on there is an important figure to mention that i should mention at this stage which is the mother-in-law of the dauphin and she seems to be significant some people believe that she set this up i don't believe that but she was a significant figure her name was Yo- uh, yolanda of aragon she was uh, a queen of not only aragon and uh, Anjou, i think but of jerusalem and, and sicily she was queen of four kingdoms she was a, a, a powerful person who directed the Dauphin and some believe directed or pulled some strings in this story to to find someone to 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 use in the context of a of a prophecy to support the dauphin I, I, I don't believe i i I believe that the people that are looking for those explanations do so because they can't accept the evidence of the remarkable events that we do know that happened if you don't believe that there's anything supernatural or mystical about this you're going to find a more plausible explanation so it's interesting that the people that don't believe in conspiracies are always finding conspiracies in historical terms when they need it to fit the bill but anyway so yeah they they they, 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 she has to relieve the siege of orleans that's gone on for a few months and it's surrounded by uh by by the the english we'll we'll call them Uh, and the there's a load of stories and some people think that there are other explanations for it. There's always these counter-explanations. But the long and the short of it is that she succeeds in liberating Orléans uh, and defeating the English who were encamped at various places around Orléans. And in that context, she, a number of things happened. She predicted that she's going to get uh, injured, now, you might say, well, that's a fairly good prediction, <laughs> you know, especially when she's running around as she did. Uh, but she did get an arrow which came into her neck uh, at Orléans and uh, led to a lot of bleeding. But she she survived that and, and went back into battle. And uh, she, the main feature, her main military uh, spirit, if you like, is to be bold. Her motto, if you like, is to go boldly. And she said... That God helps those who help themselves, on a number of occasions. But the essence of it was to be bold, and there is a there is an idea that the military leaders had been too cautious. So the big military contribution that she she inspires in the subsequent campaign in the Hundred Years' War is this boldness, where they have a frontal assault on, say, besieged towns or whatever, uh, which was hadn't been the policy hitherto, and in this uh, encouragement. Of the people to attack, um, she she demonstrated great courage and boldness. There are other little elements, for example, that the the wind changes uh, at a particular at, at a crucial time when it's needed. The predictions about the wind it was not in the favour of the French, and the the wind changes. And we also have the implication that she had some by some that she she may have. That may have been in our power. And she did talk on another occasion about bringing Thunder down, which is a, 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 that, that's a, a passing reference I saw, which is consistent with, we talked about the Sons of Thunder and the Apostles and the PK man, of course. So there's all these implications that she had extra powers. Now, of course, they, that could be myth-making afterwards. But the long and the short of it was that whereas others had failed to relieve the the, the siege or or to be successful against the English she turned the tide and she liberated uh Orléans and that uh Orléans which which I've, I've I used to, I, I taught in a couple of, a, a couple of uh years and a, a, small, a small length of time but Orléans is on the Loire and uh the in the Loire Valley and it's very important strategically North of there were the English and the Burgundians, and south of there, uh, of there were the the French, the Armagnacs, whoever we want going to call them. And once once that changed, the emphasis changed. So they proceeded to take a few other towns, a few other towns uh, uh, surrendered on, on the way, and it changed the emphasis uh, in the war, and it rallied it rallied the troops, and also. Began the myth began to come true. Here was someone sent by God, and this became important because the question was, where was God with the English or was God with the with the, with the French? And this was very very uh, significant. And people were afraid of her. They, they, they were certainly um, impressed by her. She did. She, she was. She seems to have been like a standard bearer with her standard, uh, leading the leading the uh, the soldiers uh, forward. There are books about the military input and uh, of, of Joan of Arc that suggest that she was more strategic, that indicate that she, she would have views about where you set the artillery, for example, and other details, so that she was much more involved than uh, other, other uh, people think. And there are some generals in history that have referred to her uh, as a, a military uh, a military leader, and she would certainly have... Uh, symbolically and probably militarily impressed people like Napoleon. General de Gaulle was uh, w- w- was impressed by her. So it's symbolic in one way, but it also seems to be practical. Um, and from there, they're in a position to go on to the next stage, which is the coronation of, of the Dauphin
1: which also, I gather, required a a series of battles and a a dangerous situation.
0: Yeah, the the road to to, to Rance and the cathedral, there were were big towns on the way that they had to get their surrender or to overthrow. And in the mind of the Dauphin, he wasn't certain even that the people in Rance would accept him. But uh, Joan was convinced that that would be the case, and she pressed on. She she was intent in all her strategy was to take advantage and not to hang about and to get on with it, which all the advisors around didn't seem to think in that way, or most of them didn't seem to think in that way. And to press on the advantage, that was an important idea for her. So even even coming into to Rance, the, the Dauphin is a bit uh, a bit wishy-washy, not sure. But they proceed and the uh, the king he's crowned king and she's there and that's as they say the the top the zenith of of her her public career uh, she's there for uh, everyone to see she's beside uh, the king and so she, here it is a, a girl who has come along who has said what she's going to do and has done it and has demonstrated uh, in the real world that um that her vision Uh, came true. Now you can, one can put all the contrary explanations to it, even if she was set up, it still requires remarkable courage. It's difficult. All the other explanations are more difficult than the the simple reality of of, uh, the center of the story.
1: But at this point, having accomplished the uh, coronation of the Dauphin as king, her story takes a
0: downward trajectory. Yes, and there's an important point and, and this is another reason when I'm talking about the English I use it for the shorthand terms but we're really talking about the nobility fighting against the nobility and this nobility is related. So this is not about English people or any people. Or, we're talking about nobility uh, fighting, a turf war really and, and that, that's an important point. But we have to bear in mind that under the Treaty of, of, of Troyes The uh Henry V uh, was married to a daughter of the French king. So when Philip is made Philip the Seventh, he is the uncle to the English, if you like, uh, uh, claimant of the throne. So I mean we have this interrelationship, and also the Burgundians are French, and there was interrelationships there as well, and the the Armanacs. They have relationships, other interests. So just after, uh, or, or just after the, the coronation, uh, Joan wants to press on to Paris, uh, because Paris is occupied by the English and Burgundians, and to take Paris back, and that would, would you know would, would really end the, the Hundred Years' War at that stage. But the, the king gets uh, wishy-washy again, and he decides to accept the truce of the regent, the Duke of Bedford. And he doesn't press home the advantage. And and there's a suggestion that that gave opportunity. Uh, The momentum was lost. So in the end, he kind of, they retreat. The the, the Royal, the French Royal Valois, whatever, retreat from pressing home the advantage. And Joan is left with a smaller force. And she decides to, or she and the people around her, decide to press on uh, to Paris in September where they're unsuccessful. And one of the reasons why they're unsuccessful is they weren't supported by the Dauphin. And one has to bear in mind that there are other factors that we don't don't know about. It's not about, as I said, it's not about the nationality, it's not about people, it's not about ethnicity. We're talking about a brutal power struggle that has gone on for hundreds of years between different dynasties that are interrelated and they're fighting over the same territory. And this struggle for power is what determines history. It's not the English people Uh, have no desire to go to war with the French people. There's no animosity between the peoples driving them to war. It's this struggle for power, which is more like something we'd read in in a mafia story in some senses. It's a brutal struggle for power with no morality involved, uh, but where force is the important thing. And so although she's not successful at Paris, there is some minor uh, successes uh, afterwards but she doesn't have the support. Uh, and also, it doesn't seem that her voices were telling her to do this. So in some sense as well, this, there is an idea that in her own terms, she was acting without the benefit of instruction of her higher voices. And, and, and so she never blames it on the voice. They never told her to, to, to do some of these things that she did do. So, in that sense, she's acting ultra virus, if you like, beyond the powers of her mystical uh, her, her mystical mission. And she proceeds uh, until eventually at Compiègne, uh, uh, she is captured uh, by the Burgundians. Uh, and she's uh, sold for a, a ransom for, for 200 um, pounds or a libra to... to uh, Jean of Luxembourg, a man called Jean of Luxembourg. So she's in the hands of the enemy forces. This is where the trials begin. Uh, that, there's another little step. They bring her, they bring her to a, a tower that, in, in their castle in Beaurevoir. She tries to escape from, jumped out of a 60-foot tower, nearly kills herself, uh, and doesn't get away. And uh, she was kind of protected by... The the uh, another woman uh Jeanne of, of Luxembourg and but she she dies and they sell her to the english for 10,000 livres so she's sold as, as this was normal process uh to the english uh and so she delivered she's brought around through towns paraded here's Jones, nothing special uh, and she's brought uh to the the english uh, in 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 Rouen uh, where the trial happens um, and she's not she's not released by the French. The Dauphin doesn't come to to support her. Uh, she's left on her own uh, to a large uh, well. She's left on her own, and so she sees at the end of of fourteen thirty, she arrives as a prisoner at Rouen, and that's she's not going to leave uh, there alive. She's in the hands of of the the English. Now, King Henry the Sixth, at this stage. Is aged eight, so he's in Rouen. Uh, de, 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 uh, Rouen, uh, to he's there, uh, and so I mean you, you can see the you can see the uh, the, the closeness or the proximity of some of these issues. But she's a prisoner, and uh, in fourteen thirty one, they begin the process of, of, of a trial against her.
1: And as I recall, it took several stages.
0: Yes, there's, it starts off, there's there's a preliminary trial that begins January, February, and then it goes on to what's it called an ordinary trial where the charges get uh, whittled down a bit. Um, and then at a certain stage, they threaten her. The, the, later on, they bring her out and they threaten to burn her at the end of May uh, and they get her to sign something, an abjuration, a confession, if you like, and she recants on that. And then there's a final couple of days where she's tried a, as, as a relapsed he- heretic. So there's a number of stages in it. It's characterized by, uh, there's a very important point to mention about this. Who is trying her? He's, she's effectively been tried by an English established group of, of clerics uh, from the University of Paris, from the university network and a number of them didn't want to be involved in it. It's described as an inquisition. The chief inquisitor uh, at that time didn't want to get involved in it. So there's a lot of force. Uh, It's not accurate to describe it really as a a centralized ecclesiastical uh, church matter. In many senses, it's technically illegal. Uh, It doesn't fit. There's a lot of problems with jurisdiction. So essentially, we're looking at a bunch of French clerics who are loyal to, or under control of the English, uh, the English Regent, because the king was too too young to know what was what was going on. So the Duke of Bedford really set it up, and they uh, they weren't going to they they didn't want the verdict, which was anything but what was going to, to to happen in this context. And she knew if she had been allowed to appeal to Rome. That she wouldn't have been, uh, she wouldn't have been convicted. She was quite certain about that, and she was probably right. And she didn't gain access to some of the legal rights that she was entitled to, and and there was an abuse of process even at that stage. There were more rights than people think, rights to have legal representation, which was denied to her, and uh, certain processes which we we might associate with privilege against self-incrimination in the United States Supreme Court jurisprudence. There were rights there, and they were, they were generally uh, disregarded. But uh, again, bearing in mind the fact that the church had been fragmented, we have to bear in mind that we're not really talking about the the Roman church exercising dominion over this. And uh, although the Reformation comes later, if we go back to Henry II, we see Henry II, if you remember, and Thomas a Becket, uh, you know, causing the death of... Thomas a Becket, the English authorities never really accepted the full authority of, of Rome over there, you know, when it mattered. And this was another. So we might make an analogy of uh, some of these international trials, like the Lockerbie trial by Scots law in, in Utrecht, if you like, or, 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 or something like that. But um, it's, it's a, stacked, a stacked context.
1: In any case, the end result
0: is that she's burned alive at the stake. Yeah, there's a number of she, she's she, she's initially it starts off as a kind of the witchcraft element is not as strong as people as people think. It evolves into an issue of idolatry, the idea that this couldn't be true. She was, you know, she was committing idolatry by worshipping these figures and that that weren't godlike and that they may be demonic. Um, and they focus on that issue, but the issue that becomes crucial through this process, is the issue of her wearing men's clothes. Now this is a kind of something we may not have been anticipating. But there, there was a problem at the start with her wearing of men's clothes. And this is why she has become so important or, or for, to certain groups in relation to identity and gender identity and all this. Because um, there was a, a, a biblical prohibition in Deuteronomy on women wearing men's clothes. Now in Catholic uh, in catholic theology uh, women are entitled to wear men's clothes in certain circumstances are certain justifications so it's not true to say that that position applied in all contexts but there was certainly suspicion about what people wore when she was brought the first time outside the uh, the, the church of uh, saint oen in rouen in, in may 24th and, and 1431 And they said, we're going to burn you if you don't sign this, basically. Um, Part of what she signed was an agreement not to wear men's clothes. So when she was in the cell, it seemed that they took her clothes away from her and forced her, the only clothes available to her, were men's clothes. So that by the time, a couple of days later, or a day or two later, when the uh, clerics came back and she was wearing men's clothes, that gave them the basis on which to claim she was a relapsed heretic. And she was. Uh, so at that stage, the week before she she was uh, burned, the, the position she was in was that she had signed a thing which would have given her life imprisonment. And then she renounces that. And she, uh, she also, but has f- been forced to wear men's clothes. They have her on that. And they can say that she didn't agree with what she agreed to, and she was a relapsed heretic. So she is when she's led to the when she's burned at the stake. She she has apparently a a thing on her head which says relapsed heretic, idolatry, and I think which is well on that. But the witchcraft wasn't the central bit. Technically, that issue became more important than you would have thought it. And the, the implication in some of this is that there's a lot of them believed elements of, of the things uh, but the investigation was very important in 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 so far as they're trying to identify well who did you see what were these spirits like what was going on were they real uh, did they have hair interesting interesting discernment issues that go through her. but they're going to find her guilty and she is guilty and she's uh, she's burned at the stake on may the 30th of 1431
1: but I, I gather that the records from these trials still exist
0: there was uh, notes taken every day uh, there was a number of people taken uh, and they they sat together the, the clerics and they compiled uh, as good a summary as they could uh, of the day's proceedings so there was v- there's very uh, d- detailed records available of uh, of the, of of the trial there's some mistakes in them, of course, um, but there's corroboration. And now, what happened afterwards was that there was a, so that's called the condemnation trial. Afterwards, the mother pre- asked the the king to 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 nullify this trial. So he sets up a trial, the same king, the Dauphin that become the king, and there 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 was a rehabilitation trial that that studied the case for six years and gained or brought in a lot of the people that she knew a lot of the the, the players in this uh in this story and they they ha- held that the under the auspices of the church that this trial had been uh null and her her, her name was restored if you like and that it had been uh, illegal in many senses so it didn't exist so so that le- led the way to the later hearings in the uh, in in the church when they they could uh, Canonize her because that mistake had been made, if you like.
1: So th- that process uh, that led to her canonization as a saint took about, fi- well, almost five hundred years.
0: Yes, that's right. It it, do, it did take five hundred years, and. There, there are various popes who have, uh, who did opine on the, and the, they, they did go through all the same consideration. Is this real? Could it be real? Uh, was it right? And then I think there's a deeper issue. The deeper issue is, for me, is it puts the, the church in, in a funny position, not because of the, the mistakes uh, or, or what went wrong, because in many senses there was interference with the normal centralized function of the Catholic Church. Eh? And this was, this was before the uh, early days of the witchcraft. The, the witchcraft cr- uh, became crazy during the Counter-Reformation, really, when the Reformation itself was leading to witchcraft trials. Um, but the, the problem is, what is the, the theological consequence of this? If a person believes that they can utilize uh, violence, because there was violence used, she she would issue a warning to the people in the cities that they... That if they didn 't surrender that things wouldn 't go well for them, and if you didn 't surrender at that time, you could be massacred so uh, these things happened that she was involved in, although she wasn 't directly involved in and I mean when you get to very difficult situations like Cromwell and Ireland and massacres of civilians, and you know you begin to get into the same scenario about the use of God to, to for particular objectives so it, it 's more of a challenge actually theologically in some senses uh, uh, what is the church saying now another point when they're, they're, they're making her a saint they have to rely on posthumous miracles things that happened afterwards that things happened in the 19th century nuns being healed and that as the evidence of the miracles they're not just using what happened during her lifetime so there's the evidence of a continuing uh, impact of, uh, of her my the, the the other problem is that she was very very clear that she was against she didn't believe in the church militant and uh, as they describe the, the church itself she believed that her voices were superior so she didn't respect the church and this was one of the problems for her but she believed as all mystics do that if they're communicating with the highest intelligence that it is superior to the mind of men and women around them now this this, this is a crucial I- issue so in many senses it's a refutation of the structures, which all mystics do. It's the same when we look at the Sufi mystics that became martyrs. And it's the same as other uh, Marguerite Perrette and other other women uh, and men that were executed for their, their internal spiritual belief. There's parallels with Anne Hutchinson in, in the United States and that idea, no, my internal voice from a divine source is superior to all the structures. And that's what every mystic says in all all the cultures and she consistently said that she was not going to bow and she she played games and she she demonstrated her wit and her intelligence and evasiveness uh, when she was dealing with them she wasn't even prepared to commit herself to saying that she was going to tell the truth all the time because she believed that there was a higher truth, and that she was committed to that that truth. So, so it creates some difficulties for the church. I mean, five hundred years is a bit slow by anyone's standards to to identify as a figure. And I I I, I think, uh, although this militaristic element is there in a number of saints, it, it does raise questions to me. For example, about how that fits into say liberation struggles, the right? Self determination, use of violence against. You know, uh, it, it's not an easy—it's not an easy uh, answer to that, and especially when you have the mystical voice associated with action of such uh, of such uh, an immediate uh, uh, kind.
1: Well, I know that th- th- you must personally find it problematic. I recall in our earlier discussions at one point you suggested r- regarding the the liberation of Ireland, about which obviously you have a, a, a vested interest and a lot of passion. I seem to recall at one point you told me uh, it's good that Ireland was liberated, but uh, it wasn't worth the loss of a single life.
0: I don't want to sound too precious about that because the th- there is a distinction that has to be drawn bet- between a right to self-determination and a right of self-defense and uh, an offensive campaign. So the problem with any secret societies, with any organization that is dedicated to military purposes, is that they get corrupted and they get captured. This is what happens with every organization. So that people that get involved in those organizations can end up doing horrendous things by proxy. And that's what happens. In the context of self-defense, and there is a distinction even in this story, that when she was trying to liberate the people who were under attack in Orléans, the voices were working. They weren't working when she went on the offence against Paris. I think there is actually a, a distinction. The implication, if you want to say, if there's any implication, that the right to self, the legitimate right to self-defence um, and the use of violence in that context is distinguishable from an active uh, use of force. So There is. There is. Uh, some kind of distinction there. I don't think, in many senses, they didn't have an option, and I'm not, I'm not, and I'm certainly not, thrown under the bus. The, the, the people that I met in Ireland that, that were engaged in that struggle, I think, in many senses, they didn't have. And even in international law, there's a right to self-determination. Even in theological terms, there's a right to defend yourself. Uh, we we know that we know that. So I'm not talking about that, but there's a difference when you begin to get drawn into a campaign to use violence strategically to achieve particular ends. And in, in that context, you get drawn into games. And the Game of Thrones idea, this is what we're talking about. And this is the original Game of Thrones. Now, the some of the sociologists and historians have more and more acknowledged that the modern world didn't begin as late as Karl Marx said. They believe that it, it goes back to the Plantagenets and the, the, the Norman establishment of a re-establishment of empire after the decline of the Roman Empire, the development of the military industrial complex, if you like, the link technology. And it goes back, uh, goes back to that. And that out of there came colonialism and, and the use of, you know, the expansion for resources that they created a, a, a machine. Now the, uh, those, those machines usually uh, have the upper hand in, in, in any of these struggles. the, Misti- the longer term mystical spiritual viewpoint is that it's pi- preventing as in the Gandhian context or daniel o'connell in the irish context that over the long run that uh, while you might be able to defend yourself or you have to defend yourself in context or you have to engage in, 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 in military struggle that in the absence of a spiritual evolution a spiritual evolution which has involves a societal evolution and an accommodation with nature i would say as well that reliance on those games will leave you to be defeated by the superior games player and some of these people have been playing these games going back to the time of the roman empire so they have they have a lot of experience about the use of military force deception uh you know counter insurgency uh intelligence surveillance all that kind of stuff and and the um i don't uh, what i think the moral of the story is and especially as i believe that we're facing a period of the empire of scientism being translated into a into a reality and i believe for example if you look in the united states what happened after september 11 and contingency of government which is they're talking about in britain uh, at the moment that we have the circumstances for a global construct of power uh, and that any such thing that happens will only be counteracted by a spiritual evolution, by a, uniformed, a uniform development, a uniform cooperation between peoples, which is committed to a higher, uh, higher image and, and value of people. If one is drawn into the game of thrones, one will lose that. And that, that is why I think strategically that one has to be broader in that context
1: well it does seem as if you have two different groups in the population pulling in different directions the uh, people with a spiritual orientation moving one way and people as you've described with a scientific technological orientation moving in in a different direction and uh, it doesn't seem as if humanity as a whole is uh, moving uh, together.
0: My belief is quite clear. I, I, I think that we're in the phase, as I said before, that Homo sapiens is coming to an end, that, 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 that the implication of transhumanism and that is the end of Homo, homo sapiens. And if Homo sapiens ends in that context, all the, all the ideas of a wider sense of humanity as they existed, the idea of the broader individual, the idea that we have extra powers, the things that you've talked about in all your work, uh, that can't proceed because we will be sacrificing th- that potential to a circumscribed algorithmic uh, assimilation, uh, and that really is is the contrast. Uh, so um, the, the 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 only solution to that is to begin to manifest those powers. And uh, uh, so the the moral for me uh, from the Joan of Arc story is about the essence of utilizing the powers and it came from a in the traumatic times it's often then that the person's mystical powers evolve or mystical receptivity because the other illusions have been shattered you can't have illusions when you're eating rats in in rouen or or your or your 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 village has been the women are being raped or whatever you can't have illusions about what's going to happen you have to begin to return to the original first consciousness that the divine element in us and and begin to uh, unlock the potential my argument is that what we need is a a network a, a decentralized network not organized uh, not engaged in games of thrones not engaged in in games of of, of politics but where people begin to link in a decentralized way in a way that can't be captured by an, a, any organization. It can't be corrupted. It can't be used to divide different people. Where people from different uh, from different spiritual traditions come together and begin to find that actually there's sim- more similarities in their history than differences. That the structures and that are capturable. That the people's experience, the mystical experience, whether it's Jewish or Islamic or Mos- Muslim or Christian or Buddhist or whatever, are very, very close and that that's what the essence of, of humanity is. And it's only by, by finding that connection, by reestablishing our connection with the native traditions as well, with Native American traditions, with Native American theology, accommodating our relationship with the earth, as opposed to pursuing a technocratic, uh, scientific exploitation of the earth, a quantitative, uh, a quantitative hell in the future that will, will, will destroy it. And and so that, that that's what the message is about. the the violent uh, the the violent uh, or planning on a violent approach is just not going to work in in, in my view. And the the other skills are, are are more important in a technological environment. The skills of engaging in the way the system works, in creating alternatives, in in, in decentralizing, and also challenging the power that's there. We we're facing a very very uh, terrible concentration of power and what these what these thousand years of wars in France have shown us is that people who who want power will fight to the death, uh other people's death for it. And the amount of people that have been killed in France for what? Out every circumstance you you're saying, well what are these people dying for? When we sing the song the Green Fields of France and you you're seeing the old story again the war to end wars. You know, the, the, the white crosses mute in the sand. The same thing again. It's always going to be the war, the end, end wars. It doesn't work with alternative solutions have to be proposed. And those solutions will have to bear in mind what has failed before, what has worked before. And we have to be creative and, and, and to dig into our potential and to be, uh, to be accommodating and not to be divisive and to, be, uh, to, to, to try and find common ground.
1: Well, James Tunney, I couldn't agree with you more. I think this is a crucial message and one in which uh, we will uh, repeat over and over again from different angles uh, in in the future. I look forward to many, many more conversations. I know even though we've been talking for over an hour about Joan of Arc, we've just scratched the surface in terms of the depth of uh, her life and, and its meaning for our, our viewers. But I want to thank you once again very much for being with me today.
0: Uh, thank you very much, uh, Jeff. And uh, someone said I should mention the Welch. So I'd say there was, the Welch were involved in this as well. <laughs> we'll talk about that some other time. But uh, thank you very much. And I enjoyed our conversation.
1: And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. <laughs>
0: All right.